Welcome to the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. We're going to explore ways to sharpen our diagnostic skills, find learning resources, and hear from experts in the automotive field. Hey, what's going on, automotive world? Welcome to another episode of the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. My name is Sean Tipping, and I'll be your host for today's episode once again. We are coming to a close for 2021. Uh, It's been a really fun year for the podcast for me. I talked to a lot of really uh, interesting, intelligent people. I had some great conversations. And I thought what I would do for this week's episode is just kind of do a recap of some of the most downloaded episodes. So I went through, I looked at the downloads uh, for each episode this year which ones were the most popular, and I'm pulling a little bit of audio from the conversations from each of these. So what I'll do is I'll identify the guest or guests that I had on each episode, and then I will also list the episode number. So if you haven't listened to it and you're like, oh, that sounds like an interesting conversation, of course, you can check out the full episode. But anyways, we're going to do this chronologically, starting at the beginning of 21 and working our way towards the end of 21 right now. And we'll just have short clips from the conversations uh, with all the different people that I've talked to. So uh, we're going to kick this off with an interview that was done on the third of the year. Chris Groff joined me for episode 56 of the podcast. Oh, and I've inserted the GM failure beep boop uh, in between the audio clips, just so you know when there's a break, uh, because I'm taking different pieces from the audio. Just for reference, here it is. Yeah, holy cow. Um, I know, you know, I, I have extremely limited experience with like the heavy duty or especially the farm equipment. But I remember one time I was working in a shop and uh, I'm kind of out in the sticks and somebody brought a big tractor that had a, you know, it had the enclosed unit up front where the the driver would sit and there was actually Mm -hmm. air conditioning in there and they wanted their AC charged. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to work on a tractor, but I looked and it still had the 134 you know, yep. ports on it. I'm like, okay, well, I guess, I guess this is actually the same. And, you know, I found throughout my career, if you take a growth mindset it, into this stuff and you're like, okay, let me, let me take what I already know and apply it to this other area. It's really, it's really not that different. Again, like you said, the basics still apply to all this stuff. Uh, electricity doesn't care if it's a big tractor or a Honda or whatever, you can still apply the same stuff. So uh, I know for me at one point in my career, I was scared of taking on something new because it wasn't what I was taught or familiar with, but you can, you can learn this stuff, <laughs> especially in the automotive world. You weren't, you actually just in the auto world, I think you learn such a wide range of topics and skills that, man, you can apply this to so many different things. I fixed my furnace a couple of weeks ago. I know nothing about furnaces, but I had a voltmeter and I figured it out. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. This isn't so bad. <laughs> yeah. And that's uh, one of the things I've built and everything I do off of is you can pull from everything, any experiences in your life, everything kind of is interrelated to some degree or another. I mean, even carpentry skills, plumbing skills, all this, there are times where those techniques, those skills, even that troubleshooting process you would use for it can translate in over into other things. Uh, Doing field work for John Deere and doing some mobile stuff and everything else, there are times you don't have the right tool. You don't have this, you don't have that. You don't have, you know, you're pulling a, a final drive off of a bulldozer and your crane on your truck goes down. You can still do it. There's ways around it. And it's always, I guess I got myself into trouble situations quite a bit because I never said no to anything. I didn't, oh, it's been at a shop for a year. It's all torn apart. Yeah, okay, we'll give it a shot. At the end of the day, it's nuts and bolts. It's simple rules, and you can work your way through it. Uh, The biggest thing for me 
because I work on, I talk on steam engines. If I can get service info for it, that's where I'm going for it. Okay. Even, and even some stuff you can work backwards. I mean, to be successful in as a technician, be it automotive, heavy duty diesel, whatever, all the guys really share and girls share the same general mindset, which is logical troubleshooting, being able to apply skills and being, being able to work through things. I mean, if you have the core basics of being a mechanic, it doesn't matter what it is. You can work on it. If somebody comes in tomorrow with a horse and buggy, you can fix it. Just like you can fix with the proper training, a fully autonomous vehicle coming down the road in five, 10 years. As long as you have, like you said, that growth mindset and a desire to succeed, you'll be able to do it. Yeah, it's almost like you build a confidence in yourself that you can learn something new and not be scared of that new thing because, well, I've never done this before. Let's send it to the dealer or I don't know, maybe you work at the deal. You don't have that choice, but Mm -hmm. I worked in the aftermarket and that was a lot of attitudes. Heck, it was my attitude some of the time, but you get that confidence to say, yeah, I can, I can figure this out. I'm not scared of tackling this new thing that I haven't seen before because I've done it before on so many other things. And the more you go along, the more you realize, okay, well, this isn't that big of a deal. I'm just going to learn it. I'm going to seek out that information, find that service information or do whatever other research you need to online and, and figure it out. But I mean, for somebody that's new, that's starting in this field, um, I think that's pretty eye opening (laughs) for them to realize Mm -hmm. that they can figure this out. They can tackle something new. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. I, I think anyways, but still get yeah. my butt kicked on lots of stuff all the time. So who knows? <laughs> oh, I do as well. But, you know, just working in a lot of different shops. I mean, when I was learning, I remember how awesome it felt to even stupid things. The first time you get a wheel that's stuck to a hub and everybody else knows quick tap here, boom. But the first time you get it, you're like, yeah, I did it. And it builds up. And as you take on bigger and bigger challenges, there's that feeling. But what's even cooler is once I started to build my skill set and do more, having other people in the shop, when you get a chance to teach them something or explain something, walk through a diag, walk through, you know, a shortcut and seeing that light go off. That's just, it's what even cooler than doing it yourself is helping somebody else achieve that same level. And I've always, to me, that's actually more enjoyable. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun though. I mean, it really is. It's always challenging. There's always something new to learn. And it's, I mean, you could do 8 million network com diagnostics, but each one has its own little intricacies, little things that are, you know, this may be acting up this way or this. And it's kind of cool. There is, there's still pattern failures, but there's, I don't know. Everyone to me is just a little different, even though I've seen it five, six, 10 times. It's just that little bit of a difference. And then I enjoy, I like going back, looking over what I did and saying, okay, on the next one that's similar, instead of doing A, B, C, D, let me try doing C, F, H, Z. You know, let's see how many different ways we can do this and kind of get a better understanding of the system. That that right there is a powerful tool uh, if you can, you know, take the time to utilize it is analyzing your process and what you went through, uh, you know, documenting somehow uh, paper or electronically or even in your head, but I think it's good to write it down somewhere um, and deciding, okay, what could I do better, more efficiently, more accurately the next time? Um, If you can do that, which it is time consuming. I mean, if you're on flat rates, you got to do that on your own time. Um, but the payback for that, I think is huge. So I, I think I would highly suggest that to anybody who's doing this stuff is even if you're just getting going, document what you did, go over it, say, can I do this better? Can I improve on this some way? Um, or one thing I like to do even in the moment, if I find, you know, you know, I get to my conclusion, I'm like, okay, this is the broken part. I like to say, how can I prove this thing out another way? You know, how could I do another test? I don't need to right now. I, I know this is the part that's failed, but how could I prove this another way with a different test, different method? Because there might be at some point, 
in some situation where you have to do that. So it's a good thing uh, to have in your arsenal, but yeah, that's, that's the sort of thing you gotta, you gotta spend that extra time if you want to improve your skills. Yeah. And that's uh, the way uh, Steckler always puts it is uh, three arrows in the target when you're, when you're doing a diagnosis. And that's exactly what you're saying is we proved it out this way. Can we prove it out two or three other ways in order to, if all signs still point to that component, that's where we're at. And one thing I'll add is don't always, don't only analyze your own stuff. Analyze the case studies you're reading on Facebook, diag.net, the, the YouTube videos. Watch through them and then hit pause and go, so why did he do that there? What, what allowed him to make the jump from symptom A to looking at scan data or to grabbing a scope? You know, kind of sit there, write down notes and how to put this. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the beginning getting involved in all this stuff just on my own, not realizing there was a huge community out there to pull from. Uh, IATN I found later on in my journey, same with Diag.net and the others. Uh, YouTube was a huge, huge come up and that was, you know, interacting with all sorts of people. But I spent a lot of time learning on my own and learning from mistakes, you know, reading service manuals, trying to piece it together. And I missed the whole social community component. And so I really push that on a lot of people now is, yeah, you can, you can do the research on your own, but interact with people, you know, get on, uh, you know, group chats, do Zoom meetings, do live streams, whatever, whatever you want to do, bounce some ideas around, have some fun, you know, do some, uh, we just did, I guess, about a year ago, a get together up in Staten Island with a group of us and just a whole bunch of broken cars and everybody, let's go at it. How do you diag it? How do you? Let's work together. And I think that's kind of an underserved portion of the automotive community that we've only really been seeing more in recent years is that team building and that group group think kind of has a negative connotation to it, but grouping together, working through problems and passing on the knowledge. So, Oh, without a doubt. Um, mind mapping yeah, is one way because think of how complex any given system is. I mean, even if you're just dealing with a basic, well, as basic as any drivability complaint can be a basic drivability complaint, you got to factor in fuel trims, map or mass airflow sensors, uh, potential for restricted fuel supply. You've got, you know, you really start thinking about it. You've got a lot of different components in any given thing. And until you've developed a strong diagnostic process, you can hop on that car, but you'll, you'll quickly lose track of where you are, what you've done and why you're doing it. And so mind mapping, be it learning a new system, you're sitting at home doing service info and you start jotting down different system components and just drawing lines out to this does this, this does that, or getting ready to attack a car. Okay, we have these symptoms. We'll pull a first thing I always do is my visual inspection around the car. I don't even pop the hood right away. Then I hook the scanner up. I start running a full code scan. And from there, I start develop, developing my game plan. Now, I don't write everything out all the time anymore. But if it's a particularly complex or something I've never done before, I absolutely write it down and I keep track of it. And I found that makes me consistent and it makes it repeatable. You can go through, you can find your weak points, your missed assumptions, and then you can really build off of that each time. Because yes, every car is a job that needs to get done. The customer needs to have it done right at an affordable cost. But that doesn't mean you can't learn from it. Doesn't mean you can't take everything you learned from this one and apply it to this and this and this. So a lot of people say, I don't have the time. I don't feel like it. I don't need to. I still highly recommend you do it. It's your, you, we all invest some degree of our own time and money and effort into training. You're training yourself every day. And if you're not mind mapping, if you're not noting down stuff, even just saving code scans or, or a quick sketch of what you did, you're throwing away invaluable learning opportunities at the end of every day. And you're setting yourself backwards. So to me, it's a huge step and it makes it repeatable. Um, ATG, I believe, in just about every single manual they have, they've got those little troubleshooting charts, a little mind map to help you work through various symptoms. 
if you spend the time, you develop that for yourself and your process, I mean, you're going to find within weeks of implementing that, that your, your efficiency rate and your ability to understand is just going to start skyrocketing. Next up, we've got Robert Dutch Silverstein on episode 77. You know, it's, it's kind of funny because most of the guys that I know want to consider themselves that are techs as professionals, as well they should. This is an incredibly hard job. It's hard on the body. Um, those that are more than just parts changers have to use a lot of knowledge to be able to do what they do, right? Okay. So if you want to compare yourself to a professional, do you ever see a doctor saying, well, listen, if you come to my office, I'm going to have to charge you 200 bucks for this. But if you come to the house, we can do this at the kitchen table, or I'll come to your house at the kitchen table for 40% off. <laughs> That's not what professionals do. Right. And, it, it, and even with architects or with accountants or, you know, this, if you want to be considered to be a professional to earn the wage that you should earn, there's some behaviors that you're going to need to adopt in order to do that. Well, okay. So I got, I got two questions on, on that note. Mm -hmm. uh, number one, why do you think that is present within the automotive industry where we don't necessarily see it elsewhere? I'm sure there are other examples, but you know, you mentioned doctors and architects, they don't do, they don't moonlight. And how do, how do we break that cycle? What what would be the the fix? And maybe that's a maybe that's a big question. I don't know, but these are things that are popping into my head here. For me, the the, the fix is, um, and this is either going to make people very happy, or is it really going to piss people off? Which is okay either way. Um, is to eliminate the flat rate system. Okay, I want flat rate gone. Um, I'm not saying that you should not reward productivity. I absolutely believe in rewarding productivity, but flat rate for me. And the guys that I know that are dealer techs and on the boards that I'm on, they're complaining that they went to the dealer and they were the problem solver, right? They were the guy that was given the science projects. And the problem was the front half of the house wasn't selling the, the diagnostic testing time. So guys working longer and he sees that the guy who's doing the timing belt water pumps is making more of a check than he is because he's knocking him out because he's so efficient in his jobs. So then more than one guy has told me, you know, I just dummied up, said I didn't know so I could go back to making more money. So what I want to see happen is I think guys should be paid commensurate with their skills and ability that they have to prove. Okay. Right. And if you want, I want to be able to say, and first of all, if a guy says, Hey, look, I'm earning $30 an hour, right? Let's assume the guys are in 30 hours. And he says, well, that's 50 hours a week. That's 1500 bucks. He thinks what his employer's paying is $1,500. Depending on the benefits that he has, the debt load can be up to 35%. But he, because of FICA, FUDA, SUDA, right? If he mm -hmm. has vacation time that he has to get paid, right? Either a week or two weeks, if he has paid days off, paid time off, any of the things that the, the uniform expense, when you add, start adding insurance, if it's available, when you start adding all these things, these things up and then dividing them into the hours that he can work per, uh, per year, you can see that his rate is not the 30 bucks that he thinks it is. Right. So what I want to see happen is I want guys, in, in my eyes, there should not be an A-level tech that um, should not be clearing six figures. Okay. And I don't want the guy to have to log 90 hours a week to do it. We both know uh, guys that are machines. I mean, they are flat out in 20, you know, I got one of my guys here. He can turn 24, 25 hours a day. As long as I have network, he will bust it out. Yep. But it's at the end of the week, he's toast. He's physically spent and, and mentally drained. Well, can you have a guy running at 100 hours a week if it's not doing flushes, if it's doing real work, right? Right. Can you have right. a guy do real labor for 100 hours a week and expect to get 10 years out of this guy doing that? 
I'm really good at what I do. I can handle a scope easy enough. This is not a problem for me. There's nothing I can't handle. And he goes out and he launches to, because he's been doing it, let's say on the side. He's like, this Uh is not a big deal. Okay. Then he goes in and he gets in where he, now he wants to run a full-time business and his confidence, he's a little overconfident and in, um, in psychology, there's a term, it's called Dunning-Kruger, which is that your confidence in one area leads you to believe that you're better at something than you actually are. So a lot of these guys, and this is what I'm real big on in the auto shop owners group, a lot of these, most of the shop owners came in as techs, and their biggest complaint is, you know, I, I'm great with cars, but I'm lousy with business. I, I don't get this. I don't get this. And what happens is um, they confuse being busy right? Boy, we're busy. We are busy, 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 but they're not making any money. And they don't understand why they're going wide out. I mean, they're wide open, man, right? They got cars that they're turning away work for, for, you know, Hey, listen, we're booking two weeks out. I'm here till 11 o'clock every night. I get here at six o'clock in the morning and at the end of the month, there's no effing money. And they don't understand why, because they don't understand how to charge. They don't understand where their money's going. So if the, a tech is ambitious and he wants to work for himself, he has to know what he's going to face before he gets there so that he can prepare for it, right? It's the same as if a, a tech is going to work on a vehicle he's never worked on before and it has a problem, he's going to look in Mitchell or in all data, right? Or if he needs to go identify, he's going to look at theory of operation, how does this work? He's going to check out a wiring diagram to familiarize himself with how the system works. Well, a lot of guys, when it comes to business, they just jump in with both feet. <laughs> and it, I mean, when I started, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that my ignorance has cost me tens of thousands of dollars. Because for my time, I was a pretty good diagnostician. It wasn't the best there was. But my shop, my, when I was doing it by myself and had a helper, built a reputation of fixing cars that other shops couldn't. And you like patting yourself on the back, right? Hey, 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 this is great. But I soon discovered one of the pitfalls of diagnostic time was that unless you were going to charge for it appropriately and you could relay that information to the customer so that they could see value in it, you could be the best diagnostician in the world and you were going broke. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the guy that's doing ball joints, the guy that's doing timing belts, the guy that's uh, doing wallet flush-a-thons is tunning it. And you're wondering, this guy don't have a fifth of the skill I have. Why is he making more money than me? You have to understand the business if you're going to strike out on your own. And if you want to help your employer make more money, which will ultimately mean if the guy's a decent person and not a shit, that you'll make more money. Um, and I know from everybody I've talked with, you know, this is my first time meeting you, but everyone holds you in very high regard. And I know that you do a lot for this industry too. And that, that's really cool. I mean, what what's the driving force behind that for you? Everybody complains about the automotive industry, how you know, it's so crappy and you know, there's so many problems, but obviously you see something worth working towards and making better about the auto industry because it's a noble a noble profession man you're helping people and you don't deserve to be treated like crap for for wanting to do that you know i i come from a long my family were teachers my mother was a teacher my aunt was a teacher my grandfather was you know um and education means everything to me so i find that because I live a very modest lifestyle, right? I mean, <laughs> newest car in my driveway is a 2013 Toyota RAV4. I, I don't have an airplane. I don't have a boat. You know, I live in a small house that I bought 20, oh, Jesus, that's a long time ago. Anyway, um, <laughs> in, in, in 1990, I, I don't, so I spend my money. I don't invest in things. I invest in people. So if I listen and I hear that so-and-so is a really, really good uh, technician and he has a YouTube channel 
or he is working on his own to help other people, or he is being a source, I'm going to do what I can to help them. So I offer scholarships. Uh, I pay for, you know, Sandra Juarez knows that. I worked with, with uh, Paul Danner on that, you know, Scanner Danner. Um, th- there's a lot of people. I don't, I don't want to there's, – there's a growing number of people that I work with. When it comes down to it, if we find that there's a technician – I find there's a technician that has the drive to to succeed, to be better. The only problem is he doesn't have the dough. Well, if I can help, I'm going to help. It's not like I, I cut him a check and say, here's, you know, here's a thousand dollars or something like that. But what is it you need to help you? So that's the reason why I, I, I do the stuff that I do, because I want this profession to be seen in the regard that I think that it should be, you know, next to somebody's house or potentially their kid's education, their automobile is their second or the third highest cost item, right? You buy a new car. Um, The people who take care of that are directly responsible for the safety of those occupants. That's a big deal, right? Because that's the... That's that's the car that's bringing the baby home from the hospital after it's born. That's the car that, that that's carrying um, people to their final resting place. You know, when it when it's that's the no matter from beginning to end, from birth to death, you need to get food. Unless you're in a city with mass transit, you're taking your car, and the people who take care of that are important members of society. You know, I, I hate the idea, and it, it ticked me off where, you know, I'm a big fan of Mike Rowe, where if you, the image was of Goober. Sure. You know, it's, I'm sorry, but that, that isn't, that's simply not the case. You have uh, complex electrical systems, you know, ADAS. I don't care what the system is. That's in, you can't be a dummy and do this unless you're going to be a parts changer. And that's a completely different episode. And I hope those guys die with a heart on. But um, <laughs> the, the thing is that if you're going to be a true tech, you want to call yourself a true mechanic, that's great. You're providing a, an invaluable service to society. And if you don't think so, have all the guys who turn wrenches stop. Watch this country come to a screeching MF and halt in a short period of time. I'm tired of the outside world seeing what we do as being less than an honorable profession. And the only way that I know that I can do my part to leave this world a little better than when I arrived is to encourage excellence and to put my money where my mouth is by helping those who are helping others. That's it. That's it. Education is the name of the game. Believing in people, helping them to help themselves, right? What you're doing with this podcast is going to help somebody. What Brandon Dills does, what Justin Morgan does, what Scanner Danner does, all these things. And Matt Scundrich, I could name a hundred names. There isn't enough time for guys that go out of their way to help others, right? David Friend runs an outstanding ADAS school at his shop in Wilmington, right? I bet, and he would never tell you, but um, you know how much time he's donated in helping other people? And that's just one guy. And every one of the guys I mentioned, the same thing. All they want to do is bring the industry forward, right? Too many names to, to, to name. And if I've left somebody out, please, uh, I'm not trying to, to insult anybody, but there is a growing group of people that want to do what I'm doing. I'm just getting, not- you know, I'm getting noticed for doing this, but I've been doing this for 15 years. Before social media, nobody knew except the people that were the recipients. Next up is episode 74 uh, Dutch is back in this one, and we also have Tommy Oliva and Lucas Underwood, and they joined me to talk about the effects of mobile diagnostic technicians on the automotive industry. So I have a few different perspectives. One as a failed shop owner, and one as a mobile, mobile technician, mobile diagnostician, mobile programmer, or whatnot. Um, I've encountered 
various moral dilemmas doing mobile programming in my area. Um, uh, just, just today, for example, right? I, I had a gentleman uh, from a shop. He brought me a Silverado, wanted a, a, a TCM installed. Okay, he installed it, program it, ship it. Comes back an hour later with a PCM. Hey, can you install it? Can you program it? Okay. I, I got to the point where I stopped asking questions. I just said, all right, so you want it? I get it done. I do it. And he comes back 20 minutes later. Hey, can you think you can diagnose this for me? So then I found like, hey, what the hell is going on? Oh, it has this, this uh, you know, input speed sensor code. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, I just can't figure it out. I did this, I did that, two transmissions, one valve body, this and that, that and this. I ran overlays. I just can't figure it out. Um, hey, all right, diagnose it. I, 10 minutes later, terminal pin tension issue at the connector, at the valve body. Fill him. He's, he's done. I'm happy. Two programming events in Diag. I'm in the 450 bucks. But my moral dilemma is this shop isn't eating this. This shop is passing this on to the customer. Two transmissions, uh, valve body re uh, replacement, two modules it didn't need, programming events it didn't need, and ultimately my diag fee. That's where I sometimes feel morally like, hey, man, I'm helping this guy screw other other customers. Yeah, It's not and my fault. It's not my fault. I mean, I don't feel bad that way. I feel in a sense that I am enabling this because I am there to, to provide these services. Right. And, and, you know, I think there's so much of that. And, and Dutch and I have had lots of these ethical and moral discussions over the years. And, and Dutch is, is one of my closest mentors. And I'll, I'll get into a situation. I'll call him and I'll ask him, hey, what do I do about this? And, and I, Dutch will tell you, there, there was a situation years ago with a Subaru that I, that the guy moved to Charlotte, Dutch was working on it. And, um, my tech had, I think we had put a clutch in it or something like that. And the guy said, Hey, ever since y'all did that, the shifter was loose and it was some shifter bushings, whatever, not a big deal. I said, Dutch, what do you, what do you think I should do? And he said, you should pay for it. Cool. All right. I'm paying for it. It's good. And, and the reason I bring that up is because I've, I've grown accustomed to the fact that it's first my responsibility to do the ethical and right thing for the client, right? That's what I, that's my job because I'm the professional. They're looking to me to say, Hey, you're taking care of me. Um, and one of the ways, and, and we were just talking about that this morning in our shop. So I'll, I'll set the, the story up for you a little bit. Um, we had a car that came in. I'm building a new shop. So I'm, I'm working on building the new shop. I'm not in the shop right now as much as I was. And the husband comes to the service advisor and says, hey, I'm getting ready to get my wife a new car. I don't want you to tell her everything that's wrong with this one. I just want you to look at it and tell her something. And so they looked at it and they gave her a little bit of information and did our standard reporting, but they could not find the noise in the allotted time. So they needed to either do more testing, but they didn't do the standard write-up we always do. So she calls and she says, hey, I don't know what to do. I really want this noise found. I really like this car. I was talking to the service advisor this morning. I said, it, 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 the client does not dictate our process. We put processes in place to protect us and the client to make sure they get the quality of service that we demand from our staff, from ourselves each and every time. Right. And so Tommy, in that situation, the way I perceive what you're going through is it's very, very important that we put processes, policies, and procedures in place that allow us to protect the end user. And, and if we're working for somebody who's in that situation, me personally, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not saying it's right, wrong, or indifferent, me personally, I'm going to back away and say, hey, I don't really want my name attached to this. I'm really sorry. I, I'm not trying to offend you, but I just don't think this is something I want to be involved in. I tell clients all the time, no, I'm not interested. Thank you, though. Right now, a lot of people get upset at that. And a lot of shops will say, what in the world? You're telling money? No, absolutely. Because I've said it before, um, those thermostat bolts on that car that 
you know, the guy comes in with an overheating, you know, Dodge pickup at the end of the day and says, Hey, could you just throw a thermostat in it real quick on a Friday afternoon? And they break off in the manifold and you're there all weekend trying to get the dude back on the road. Cause you told him and be done Friday afternoon. Stop putting yourself in that situation. See, for me, Tommy, the, the, the fact that you're concerned about it speaks volumes about your moral compass. And I commend you for thinking about it. But I'm going to tell you that you are not responsible for the actions of others. Now, you may have suspected that what this guy is going to do is charge the customer. You may legitimate be, legitimately be right. That's what he's going to do. Is that your issue? It's not my issue. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like I, I, I did my job to my expectations. Like I, I am okay with what happened. I'm not okay in the greater good. So, in my shop, um, a few years ago, uh, because of a lot of the training events, and I started seeing how people were, and this is even kind of before ASOG was really popular. I kind of just. I knew I had to go in a different direction. I don't like having problems with customers. I started having parts quality products. I had too many, um, I had too much work, not enough money. So I decided to go in the, you know, better warranty, uh, selling a service, selling uh, selling quality, trying to, you know, I went about it the wrong way. I see that now as, as I'm getting to where I'm, I'm at in my career. But my biggest dilemma was I always did things for the greater the greater good, the greater good of the industry. I love this industry. This industry gave me everything. Um, but at one point, am I supposed to say, well, 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 what, well, what about me? Like I, I'm in a really bad neighborhood. I didn't the best that I could. Um, I just, I'm at the point right now that I'm actually just walking away. Like I, I'm focusing on something else and maybe in a few years I can, probably find a better location something like I'm, I made my peace with the fact that I'm not in a good neighborhood and I need to move out. But what I'm trying to get at is it didn't, it didn't work for me. And I don't know whether I'm okay with it or I'm not okay with it because the guy next door to me, his, his shop is a lot bigger, a lot, a lot nicer per se, but it looks like a junkyard. He has cars up the wazoo because he can't get them out because he doesn't know how to diagnose them properly, but he's making money. So it's just like, well, I can sit here and say what did I do wrong, what did I, what what I didn't do right, but at the end of the day, it's it's the greater good of the of the industry, and that's that's where I have my problem. I don't know if I'm getting my my point across. I feel kind of my, I'm all over the place. Um, it's been a little, it's been a difficult uh, couple months for me. But anyway, so when I when I see the when I see these these customers go to these shops. And unfortunately, it is reality. Um, I didn't ask him, obviously, I, I'm not going to ask him if he's charging the customer or not, but it, it's it's a pattern. Like, I've seen this before from this guy. And and Lucas, you're, you're totally correct. Like, maybe I should stop working with this gentleman. But then it's like at a point where it's, this is kind of my job. So I get stuck in between this, this situation where it's like, should I, should I, shouldn't I, what do I do? What's right? What's wrong? Um... And I, and I guess that's where this conversation is a great one because I've had conversations with, you know, even like Brandon, uh, a lot of mobile guys, like Pedro, and I, and I say this all the time, like, man, like, why, why, why are we, in essence, moonlighters? Are we enabling these shitty shops that want to pay their guys cheaper, but then we have to come and bail them out? Look. I want you to ask yourself a question, and this is kind of difficult. Mm -hmm. Should a doctor work on a drug addict if he knows he's going to wind up doing drugs? Should a doctor save him? A drug addict presents in the emergency room on an overdose. Did the doctor say, you know, what's the moral good here? This guy's just going to go out and do it again. Or does he, as a professional have an obligation to do his best to save that patient, irrespective of what that patient may do later. Your obligation as a professional is to do your best for the client that hires you. 
What happens after that is between them and God. Now, at this point, if you know in your heart, and Lucas alluded to this, if you know and you have incontrovertible evidence that what they're doing is wrong, you can, as a businessman, say, you know, I don't want to help you in this. I got a, a bad feeling about it. I just, I'm going to step away and refer you to someone else, or if not, give them a name, say, I wish you a lot of luck. That's what you need to do. Your moral compass is what's going to keep you awake at night. We can't make up as individuals for the sins of the industry. All we can do every day is put our best uh, foot forward in order to help others who need our help. Maybe that guy who possibly is going to charge for the two transmissions, the valve bodies uh, and the programming events, maybe he'll wake up tomorrow and go, I can't live my life this way anymore. I can't do it. Maybe he's not going to charge that person. Your responsibility as a professional, as someone with expertise, is not dependent upon what he does. Amen. Yeah. Here's the deal, though, right? Is it all comes back to the same thing. It doesn't matter whether you're a mobile diagnostician. It doesn't matter if you're a shop owner. You have to have business knowledge. You have to have processes, policies, procedures that take time and effort to write. You have to know what policies and procedures to write. You have to have screwed some stuff up, right? You got to know your financials. You might be mobile. You still got to know your financials. You've got to know where you stand financially because if you don't, you'll back yourself into a corner. It takes five to seven years to build a good reputation. Right now, I know a lot of these guys are using social media and things like that to build a good reputation, but you have to have a reputation with shops in your area. Right? Same thing with owning a shop. You've got to start with some business sense. You have to build a plan. You have to work around that. You can't just all of a sudden decide, hey, I want to be a mobile tech and jump into it. You can do that, but it's not always the most profitable way to do it, right? You've got to do some planning first. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it, but there's costs associated with it you need to be aware of. Now, is that a good line for a student? I think that that the best mobile diagnosticians come from shops, right? They didn't see opportunity to grow. You know, you hear us talk about it on our podcast all the time. Why do good technicians stay at hack shops, right? It's time to leave the hack shops. If if your if your owner's not taking care of you, it's time to leave. Sorry, I said it. But my point is, is if if you're at a shop and you grow and you've learned these things, you've you've learned this skill and this trade, and you want to step out and learn the business ownership side of it, that's one thing. But don't think that jumping out and doing mobile diagnostics is simply going out and working on the car. You know, it it's in Michael Gerber's book, The E-Myth, where he talks about um, baking cupcakes. Right. And he talks about the lady who's got the bakery and she was baking cupcakes and then she bought the bakery and and she goes to him because she has no money. And she says, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I just want to bake cupcakes. And he said, well, owning a bakery is not the same job as baking cupcakes. That's not the way this works. Now, I get that mobile diagnosticians have it a little bit easier. You don't have all the overhead and the brick and mortar and all the things you have to manage and run but the same concept still applies. Oh, well, the, the, the issue is that unless, and I don't know what the curriculum is, Sean, at your school, but unless at your school, or unless the schools that, that these younger people are attending teach, teaches shop financials, then they're going out the most technically proficient student that you may have ever seen, the one out of 100,000 who's stellar, without a basis in shop financials without a basis in organization and scheduling is going to suffer until he learns it. And he'll never realize the dream that he hopes to achieve until such time as he begins to understand his financials. If he doesn't know how to break out his return on his investment for the equipment that he's going to have, 
if he doesn't know what his fixed expenses are, if he doesn't know how much to charge per hour, if he doesn't include his travel time, if he doesn't do all the calculations that are necessary to determine what's necessary to run a profitable business, if he doesn't learn that at school, can he muddle his way through it? Absolutely, he can. Lucas and I both know guys that are great at what they do. You put them in front of the car. But they stumble and they're not making any money because they don't know money and they don't know financials at all. All the while, they could have gone to a shop and made seventy-five, dollars $100,000 a year doing the same thing with benefits and half of the liability, half of the stress. This, these things, you know, but a lot of it falls on our owners. Uh, Lucas, you have to know this. Amen. <laughs> there's no doubt in my mind. There's just been a, a massive, um, a massive shift in, in thought processes. And it starts with my generation. Um, so my father, rest in peace, he had a train of thought where, especially in business, that more is better. Even though you're cheaper, but if you're busy, it's good because you're making money. And I, it took me years to shed that mentality because I was busy. But then I look at the end of the week, I, I worked 15, 16 hours every day. We used to work seven days a week. But I, I, I'm like, well, where's, where's my money? I'm like, where, where is it? Like, why, why am I not – like, I'm producing – but if you do take into calculations all the time, I had to do this, do that, do that. I really wasn't making much. So I had to shed that, those ideals. And also a lot of my, my fellow generationalists, um, we, we aren't as money motivated as somebody like my father. My father was just happy finding a job. Like, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm, my parents came from Guatemala. They immigrated from Guatemala. And years ago, I had this conversation with my dad. I'm like, why the hell did you come to Chicago? I mean, the, the, the average temperature in Guatemala is like 70 degrees year round. Like, it's like, why would you come to this frozen shithole? <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? How come you didn't pick Los Angeles or Miami or even Texas? Like, why Chicago? He's like, I was in Miami. I was there for three months and it was hard to find a job. I go, I had a, I had an uncle here. He told me to come over, and we, I, he said he could find me work the same day. And I actually I got there, and I went to go get breakfast, and somebody came into the spot asking me, hey, who wants to work today? My dad was like, okay. And I was in that factory. I didn't like something. I walked to the factory next door, and they were like, oh, we'll hire you tomorrow. So it's it's like there was opportunity here. I go, there was there was there was money here, and I was happy to be able to make money. I go, and I think that's um, part part of our problem is that it's just you know a lot of the shop owners, barring barring yourself, Dutch, that are older, to still have that old mentality. You should be grateful you have a job. I don't have to worry about calling to your emotions or your feelings or, or this and that. You should just be grateful that you're working. So you've been listening to me when I talk to other people. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, my dad was, you know, God bless him. He was old school to the bone. Like that's just how he how he was. That's and we, the way we were raised. Correct. Exactly and right. there is that. There's not there, there was anything wrong with it. I just feel like times have changed, and a lot of people, you know, you adapt or you die. And a lot of a lot of these shop owners, like I, I've had a couple uh, ones. Some of the most successful ones will tell me the same thing. You just have to adapt to the workforce. Times have changed and money isn't our, like I said, especially for me, money is, if money is, was my motivator, I wouldn't be doing this. I'd be at the shop right now, humping my butt like I used to, to make money. But I don't, I, that's not, I want quality of life. And unfortunately in the industry, it's either the shop owner is still stuck in that past or is stuck in the financial past where he can't generate enough to pay himself a, de a decent living wage, he can't afford to pay his guys. I have shop I have shop owners that don't have service information still. I mean, they they they're great they're great great guys. I mean, I don't I even feel bad talking about about this about them because they're they're generally good people. They just they just don't know, and it's the same the same perspective. As long as you work, you're gonna be okay. 
I'm sorry. That just doesn't fly anymore. There has to be a combination of things. At least at least for me, at least most of my the people that I've in my age bracket that I have had these discussions with. Dude, I, I have socks at home older than you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you a little know. on the older side here, all right? Next up, the one and only Brandon Steckler joined me on episode 78 to talk about increasing your value as a technician to your shop or your employer. And I realized, I'm like, you know something, this is terrible. You guys want me to solve these problems because I'm capable. And the guys I helped assist, you know, I'll call them younger technicians or, or newbies or greenhorns. Uh, these guys are now making more money than myself because I'm jammed up. So I, I think there just ought to be a way to compensate. But to go back to your question, Sean, and I apologize, I got sidetracked there. Um, it's all good. How, how does one, you know, get to where they want to be as far as training goes? Like I said, first and foremost, you have to want it. You can't do it because somebody's making you and expect to have an easy time doing it. Um, you have to focus your your learning around things that are going to be applicable to everything or, or most vehicles you work on. And if you think about it, that boils down to the physics. You know how uh, I always use the example to make a spark. That's something we can't change. That's physics. You know, that involves mutual induction and, and, and laws of physics like, like Ohm's law and Lentz's law and Faraday's law. And these are things that no matter what you're working on, the, the newest Lamborghini or, or a 1929 Mormon, you know, they all have to induce a spark to to initiate combustion, those those four stroke internal combustion spark ignition engines. So I want to learn how a coil works. And, um, yeah, we know we've got two wire cop coils and we've got three wire cop coils with electronics inside and, and four wire cop coils with those electronics and a feedback circuit. Sean, I can read about that stuff. So if I have access to good service information. I become familiar with how things work. Let's just call that fundamental knowledge. That's stuff we acquire over years of practice. And, and I have the appropriate tools and understand the limitations of those tools. There's really much, nothing I can't fix, whether it's, a, again, a Harrier jet, uh, a curling iron, or in this case, a, an automobile. So that, that, that's, my, that's my mindset. I don't, I don't care what vehicle you pull in front of me. If you can get me the tools, you can get me the service information. I'm going to figure out what's wrong with it. Well, and it's uh, it was an interesting moment for me, and I don't remember exactly when it was. I, I think it was after I had purchased my first home, and I realized, wow, I can take some of these uh, things that I know as far as vehicle repair, you know, it's particularly diagnosis stuff and electrical, and I can apply it to other areas too, right? Like I can fix my dryer, or my furnace or something like that. And it's not exactly the same, but the same basic principle. So having something like that, I definitely like things that I can apply across the board, no matter what it is. Um, the electricity is obviously one of those, but even the basic four-stroke cycle, you can apply it to just about everything. Um, once you learn that, you have that foundation, right? Um, but to your other point, it's it is passion, right? You have to you have to be interested in this stuff. Um, I mean, if, honestly, I've always thought if you want to make six figures in this business as a tech, it's definitely possible, especially today more than ever, I think. But I don't think you're going to do that if you don't have a passion for this. I, I don't I don't think that's going to be. You're not going to reach that point if this is just a job and you're doing it because you have to. <laughs> there has to be something a little extra there to drive you. You know, Sean, um, I, I will tell a lot of people this. Lots of people make the mistake of trying to learn on the job and and mainly on broken cars. You know, they I watch it all the time. They get the scope out. They wipe the dust off. They plug it into the wall because the battery is so sulfate it doesn't even turn on. And And now they want to try and remember how the scope works and then try and fix a car and they're getting all jumbled up. That's not the time to do it. I mean, yeah. Does it require some extra time, your free time even? I can't tell you how many times I would stay late. I mean, maybe only an hour or two. Sometimes I'd stay four or five. I'd get in so much trouble because I got so wrapped <laughs> up in excitement with what I was doing. Um, I, I kind of lost track of time. So I got in a lot of trouble with my wife. 
<laughs> then you can, <laughs> and you got to be careful of that because you get carried away, but it's sort of addicting. Um, you do have to invest your free time, but believe me, it is so worth it. It really is worth it. A pen, especially you younger guys and, and girls, um, because I'm telling you, if I knew what I know now and, and the type of training I do now, if I knew this 15 years ago, I'd be light years ahead of where I was. And I'm confident if you guys are just getting started, maybe maybe you've been in the shop six months or a year. If you do what I'm, I'm suggesting now, I promise you, if you put forth the effort in less than five years, you are going to far surpass guys like myself and Sean in leaps and bounds. Because it's just the fact that you guys are are experiencing some of the or, or you don't have a chance to experience some of the downfalls, the pitfalls we had to learn the hard way. So for one, again, master the basics, study, study those classes, study those laws, the Ohm's laws, the Faraday's laws, the Lenz's laws, et cetera. Become familiar. With, you don't have to me- you don't have to memorize them word for word. Just understand what they mean, because they apply to everything you are ever going to work on. Um, Buy the tools, invest in the tools like, like your lab scopes that sometimes can cost $2,500 or, or more for a, a, a multi-trace capable lab scope. But you know what? That scope is going to be applicable to everything you work on, just like your 19 millimeter sockets. Um, fundamental knowledge. You have to invest in yourself. You have to understand how things function. So that means obtaining on everything you work on a wiring diagram and system description and operation. Lots of times I'll reference a flow chart, not because I want to follow it blindly. I want to understand thresholds, what the computer wants to see to be satisfied or, or what it needs to see before it, it, it flags a failure or sets a DTC. This stuff can be found very easily in service information. Um, here's an important one. Practicing on known good vehicles, investing your own free time, structure your practice sessions. In other words, I have I utilize the 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 heck out of the notes section in my iPhone, and I mm-hmm. will come up with experiments. And I'll just type an experiment like, uh, you know, mass airflow values when the engine is turned off. You know, is it going to increase in mass airflow because crankshaft speed slowing, or am I going to lose mass airflow rate because the engine's slowing down? It's these things that I, I'll just think about. I'll I'll be riding in a on a train or something like that. And it'll hit me like a ton of bricks and I'll just make a note. That's an experiment I want to try. Um, network and train with other technicians, me and my one buddy, Danny, uh, I, ironically, I just saw him this past weekend. I haven't seen him in years. I used to work with him at the Honda dealership. Danny has been a Honda technician for over 40 years. And I, at the time was only involved with Honda, maybe six years, but you know what? He saw my my hunger for knowledge, and it inspired him to stay late. So he was my partner in crime. We'd, we'd spend a night or two a month till seven, eight, nine o'clock at night experimenting and sharing ideas, and it became fun. We were high-fiving like crazy and just enjoying the heck out of our day. So you get a partner to join you, it's going to make that that more of a dynamic thing. That learning is going to be so much more to both of you, and you're going to make a friend for life. Um, here's the important part. As you start to do tests like this and implement what I'm telling you in this list, your confidence will grow. As your confidence will grow, you will take on bigger, tougher challenges and you'll be successful. I promise you, because sooner or later, all this, what I'm talking about is learning how to learn, how to be a self learner. This is not stuff you're going to read in a book. No one can tell you how to do it and no one can make you do it, Um, but you're going to have to want to do it yourself and Believe me, it's it's so much fun, uh, and and we already reflected upon certifications that they they maintain the professionalism in our in our craft, and I think uh, it's very important. Not because it makes you a better technician, although it it can make you a better technician, but also it it just it shows your level level of dedication and professionalism, and I think that uh, that's a common trait amongst all of the elite technicians in our trade is is their level of dedication and, and willingness to help and and wanting to be professional. You ever notice, Sean, those, those guys at the top, you know, the ones we see every state in the country, we see the same men and women over and over again, the same probably 500 people, no matter where we go. Um, they're always happy. They love what they do. And, yep. and when, when you start implementing some of those, that list I just rattled off to you guys so fast, um, 
your job is not going to become a job. It's going to turn into something you get paid to do and you really enjoy. Okay, uh, that's going to do it for today. Um, I've actually got quite a few more episodes. This only brings me to about halfway through the year or a little under, um, but uh, I'm going to release part two later this week. Um, I think a second episode should probably take care of the rest of what I've got. If not, we'll squeeze a third one in there. Um, But uh, make sure to check out these full episodes if you want to hear the whole conversation, because every one of these, I mean, obviously they were uh, some of the most downloaded ones, but all of them were really great conversations. So I've referenced all the episode numbers and I'll put that in the show notes as well. But other than that, we'll see you later this week. Let's all get out there and start fixing the world one car at a time.